jumping back in here. Uh, we're partway through the chapter, so we're going to be picking it up in verse 32. And uh, it's interesting because even though John's got 21 chapters and we're just at chapter 7, we're already down to the last six months of Jesus' ministry. Like John's brought us this far already in seven chapters. It's, it's the autumn before the spring crucifixion of Jesus, his burial, his resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And so it's just interesting to go, wow, we're, we're a third of the way through this gospel and already we're like, we're nearing the end of uh, Jesus' ministry. And as we're going to see here, as we keep going, and, it, and it's in this text, like all the more we're going to start to read words like arrest, kill, you know, the plot was out and it was happening and it was ready to go. And it's true that no sooner had Jesus begun his ministry than almost immediately people began to plot his assassination. And as we move on through this gospel, I mean, we know the end of the story, but increasingly we're going to be faced with this fact and we're going to see it and we're going to read it and we're going to hear it, that Jesus is going to die. He's 33 years old. He's got six months to live. Now that's kind of crazy to think about it, to go, man, like imagine if that's you. I've got six months to live. And it's not the most, you know, cheerful thought, but to just go, wow, if I knew that about myself, if I knew that I had six months left to live, you know, what would you do? What would you think about? What would be your goals and what you wanted to accomplish and what you valued? You know, obviously you'd focus in on what you felt like you were going to lose, I imagine. Others might think of, all the things they'd like to do, maybe travel, maybe go visit family, whatever it is. Jesus, it's interesting that he was thinking about what lay beyond death and what he was seeking to accomplish and going to his father. So even though he's got six months left, he's got a vision for the hope of eternal life. He's got a vision for what he's going to do for his disciples and those who will follow him. He's got a vision of going to the father and to heaven, and you know, the way Jesus talks tells us that he was living for and thinking about the things that lay beyond his death. And six months ago is not a very long time, but he, he said this, he said, I'll, I'll be with you a little while longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. And so this is kind of where we're gonna pick up the story, and here's where, uh, let me just remind you where we've been. We pick up the story, if you weren't here last Sunday, this is during the, the Feast of Booths. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the Feast of Booths. It's one of the three major uh, festivals celebrated by the Jews each year. It was the happiest of all their festivals. That They also called the Feast of the Tabernacles. And families would do this. It was really joyful. They'd travel to Jerusalem. And then they'd like, set up a little campsite and they'd build these little tents, so to speak, these little lean-to structures, kind of like a pup tent and they'd have a camp out and it was like, it was like, I described it this way last week, that it was like Thanksgiving family camp out with a million people in the city of Jerusalem and everybody's camping and they're going to worship and they're celebrating and they're having a wonderful time and during 
that week of celebrations, parents would recount to their children the history of their people. They'd tell the kids about the Exodus account and Moses and slavery in Egypt and how God set them free from slavery and how they went into the wilderness, you know, going through the Red Sea and the Lord leading them for 40 years through, through the wilderness. And they would recount the goodness of God like we were singing, how he had been faithful to them. And they were like, this was Thanksgiving family camp. And they would tell of the pillar of fire that warmed them by night while they were in the wilderness. They would tell of the pillar of cloud that would shaded them by day. They would tell their children about how their ancestors were fed the bread of angels, bread from heaven, manna, and God provided it every day. They would tell their kids about water coming from a rock when they were thirsty and dying of dehydration. And so this is the scene of John chapter seven. All of this is going on. All these people have come to, to worship and to celebrate and to remember this sort of Thanksgiving festival in Jerusalem. And last week we saw this. The early part of John chapter seven tells us this, that Jesus had waited to go to the festival that, that his brothers, his, his half brothers had said, come on, let's go. You know, go make yourself known if you want to be famous. And Jesus had said, you know, my agenda's not your agenda. I'm going to, you go ahead. I'm going to, I'm going to hang back here. And after they had departed, Jesus knowing, John tells us that he knew there was a plot to assassinate him, a plot to murder him. He, he hung back and then he went to the feast. He went to family camp, uh, kind of incognito, privately, uh, and arrived in Jerusalem, not, not showing himself off publicly until about the middle of the festival. And then he went up to the temple and he began to teach. And so John chapter seven, and actually where we were last week, it's important that I just back up a bit so we get context for where we're going this morning. But the, the earlier part of this chapter showed some of the conflicts that people had with Jesus. Some of the problems that they had with him. The first conflict that we saw had to do with regards to his, his half-brothers. Because for them, their familiarity with Jesus had not led to faith in Jesus. They had lots of information about Jesus. They knew more about Jesus than anybody ever on the face of the earth, really, if you think about it. They knew Jesus better than anybody. But for them, it was just information. It had not led to heart transformation at this point in time. They had not put their faith in him. And we saw this, that, that knowledge, we talked about this, that knowledge and trust are two different things. To know about Jesus and to trust Jesus, those are, those are two different things. And salvation, being saved, is based on putting your faith and your trust and Jesus, his, brother hadn't, his brothers hadn't done that. And then at the feast, we saw that the name of Jesus was on the lips of the people. John tells us people were talking about him. Where is this Jesus? Where is this rabbi from the Galilee? And people were talking about him. And so when he came out into public and he began to teach on the temple grounds about the middle of the feast, they challenged his credibility. They, they, even though they had been talking about him, they said, and they didn't respond to what he was teaching. They said, where, where did this man get schooled? Where did he get educated? And they, they questioned where he received his training. And so Jesus responded to 
these questions about his training and his education and where he had been schooled saying, saying that if you obey what I say, then you'll learn that my words are true. You'll come to know that my words are true if you're actually obedient to them. And Jesus told the crowd this. He, he said essentially this, that the pathway to spiritual knowledge is not education. The pathway to spiritual knowledge is obedience. That you have to obey my word. That you have to obey the things that I teach. And he told them that spiritual matter, spiritual knowledge was more, really he was saying this, it's more a matter of your will than it is your mind. You got to determine that you're going to be obedient to the words of Jesus. And so it's interesting, you know, we see these conflicts that people had as we come through this, this text and it preps us for this morning that it's, that it's not knowledge or education that matter, but it's obedience and trust that matters. And so Jesus confronted this crowd and, and they made judgments about him and, and, and he said this to them. He said, a, a, a person who's prepared to judge other people more harshly than they judge themselves isn't a fair judge. Because he said you, you're judging on the basis of appearance rather than reality and, and that kind of person cannot go any further with me. You need to obey me and you need to trust me. And he told the crowd that they could not recognize his words because they were from the father and because the word, his words were from the father and because they had already failed to obey the word of the father. They were breaking the 10 commandments. And so Jesus said, you, you, you actually can't judge me. You don't have the authority to judge me. And so it's interesting that this is, this is the, the background uh, to this text. And, and the truth is this, is that we will never make a right judgment about Jesus. You cannot morally as a human being make a correct judgment about Jesus unless you first trust him and then obey his words. Then you have permission to judge him. Then you can say whatever you want. And it's interesting when you trust him and you obey his words, what do you discover about Jesus? Wow, he's trustworthy and his words are true then you actually make the correct assessment about who he is. He's Lord. He's God. He's King. He's the Messiah, the Christ. But there was hatred going on for Jesus. And Jesus had told his brothers that he was hated by the world because he testified to their evil. And so right here at the end of this text, we see in verse 30 where we left off last week, 31, 30, 31, that they, they sought to arrest him. As he said these things, imagine this. They sought to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And I was just thinking about that. I mean, like, how do you seek to arrest him and then not do it? Like, Andrew is a former cop. Is that how it works, right? You, you, you like, have a plan. There's, like, thousands of people in the temple grounds, priests, temple guards, and you plan to arrest him and you can't do it. And there's no reason to explain why it's not done. Except for this, that his hour had not yet come. They couldn't do it. They couldn't arrest him. And so and in chapter 7 verse 31 it says this. That many people believed, him, believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So this is the context. People are, there, there are some in the crowd who have faith in Jesus. And they're doing the lie. They're just in their minds. They're going through the logic. They're like, is it possible that when the Christ appears, he would actually do more than this man? 
And they're recognizing, some are beginning to recognize, maybe he is the Christ. And so this is where we pick up the story. It's in the middle of the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles. Again, six months before the cross. And Thanksgiving family camp's gonna get a little intense. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. This is the second time we're told they come to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. I I mean, this is so interesting. Like you, you read this and there's like so much confusion going on with regards to the crowd and their thoughts, his family, the chief priests, the, the, the regular people, they're confused about Jesus and about his words and uh, it seemed to be kind of the norm of what was going on with the crowds and their opinions about Jesus. They were having a hard time even though some were believing and yet what's so cool about this is you know who's not confused? Jesus. Jesus is not confused. I mean John just presents Jesus and we just know this about him. He knows exactly what the father's up to. He knows exactly what the Father's plan is. He knows what God's called him to do and what he's being led by the Holy, Holy Spirit to do. He's, he's sure of himself, not, not in pride. It's just he knows what he's been called to do, what the, fa- the job the Father's given him to do. And he, he claimed, you know, to be God. He claimed that his origin was with God. He claimed to be sent to men by God. He, he claimed that he planned to return to the Father. And he said it right to the crowd. And, and you know, the question was, where was Jesus going to go? Where's he going to go? I mean, we might even say, where's he going to go after his death? And the question arose because here are these soldiers. They're sent, they're sent, temple guards they are. They're sent to arrest him. And he says, I'll be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to go to him who sent me and you'll seek me and you won't find me, and where I am, you cannot come. To me, that sounds so different from John chapter 14. Are you familiar with John chapter 14? Flip there in your Bibles to John chapter 14 for a second. I, I know you're familiar with it, but let me remind you of this text. Because Jesus had a similar conversation, but the, in John 14, he had this conversation with the 12, and there Jesus said to the 12, he said, I'm going away, And where I'm going, you're going to come to. And I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you so that you can be with me because I want you to be where I am. Let let me read to you. We'll we'll, we'll pick it up maybe. uh, Well, let's go right from the top of the chapter. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas, you love Thomas, right? He said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I know where I'm going and when I go there and it's ready and it's ready to rock, I'm coming back and I'm gonna take you to be with me that you may be where I am also. I am the way. When Thomas questioned, uh, we don't know how to get there. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I just think, wow, what a contrast between John chapter seven at the Feast of Booths with this crowd and with temple guards seeking to arrest him and what we read in John chapter 14 with Jesus and the 12. What a contrast. To his followers, Jesus said, I'm going away and I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you and you're going to be with me. And to the crowd, he said, where I am going, you cannot come. To me, that's like, wow. What side of the fence would you like to be on? It's pretty clear. You know, and had these, these men at the Feast of Booths, this, this crowd been willing to do God's will, they would have known the truth about who Jesus was. And the rulers had sent temple guards to arrest Jesus, but it was, it was Jesus. Like I read these words, it sounds to me like he's arresting them. Like who's actually under arrest? They're like, what? What is this guy talking about? Where is he going? It's like he's not in handcuffs. They're mentally in handcuffs. They're spiritually in handcuffs at, at his words. And he warned them, look, I- I'm going away. And-, and you only have a little time left to hear the truth and to believe in me and to be saved. And, and I'm not in any danger. I got to tell you, come arrest me. I'm not in any danger. Actually, you're in danger. And the danger for you is this, that if you don't believe in me, you won't be with me. You won't be where I am going. Now it was the Feast of Booths and, and during the Feast of Booths they did something that was I think really special that was part of the annual celebration of remembering the Lord's provision in the wilderness. See they would do this over this week long festival every day the high priest would leave the temple and there would be this great procession the people would line the streets And the high priest would leave the temple. He'd kind of go down the main area of Jerusalem and he would descend into the original city of David. We we actually read about David that when he built the city and he saw the angel of the Lord coming and God staying the angel of the Lord that he was looking up towards the top of the mountain and he purchased that land to build the temple. So where David's palace had actually been was below the area of the temple. And so the high priest would descend towards uh, David's, David's former palace down to the, into the valley and he would take with him a, a pitcher, an empty pitcher, like a chalice, a golden chalice. And the high priest would do this. He, he would take it, like there would be children and parents and grandparents like lining the streets. Think of sea cavalcade, but like on steroids, okay? A million people. They all would line the streets for this great procession and the high priest would go down into the valley and he would go down to the pool of Siloam in the city of David in the old city it's like going upper Gibson's down to lower Gibson's and the pool of Siloam was a, a neat a neat spot because that pool is filled with a spring of water and 
the spring, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the spring. All of a sudden, it just went. Didn't have it in my notes. Oh, well, that's okay. The, the pool is filled from this spring, and here's the thing about this spring. The spring is on the outside of the city, and there's a tunnel that takes the water from the spring and brings it to the pool of Siloam. In fact, I've walked through that tunnel. Some of you have walked through that tunnel when you go to Jerusalem. It's really cool because it was carved out by Hezekiah. We, re we read about the story of Hezekiah that when he was under threat from the Assyrians and, and the potential of being attacked that he recognized, boy, if we can guard our water source, then we can, we can withstand uh, the enemy. And so Hezekiah engineered this tunnel that took the water source of this spring and brought it into the city to the pools of Siloam. And then they covered it up so that the spring couldn't be discovered on the outside and yet there was this source that was always inside the city, water running through this tunnel to the pool of Siloam, bringing, bringing water into the city and, and it was all built to protect them from their enemies. The secret source Get the picture. The secret source of water that sustained life that the enemy couldn't touch, that the enemy didn't have access to, that was for the people of God, it could not be cut off. You, you get the picture, because we have an enemy, right? We have an enemy and there's a secret source that God has given us through his son Jesus. A secret source that the enemy can't touch, he doesn't have access to it, he cannot stop this source of provision that the Father has given us through the Holy Spirit. So the high priest would descend in this great procession down to the pools of Siloam where the, where the water was opened for all to receive. It wasn't, it wasn't secret for anybody inside the city. It was secret for anybody on the outside. Any enemy who would come to attack, they didn't have access. But inside the city, those who were on the inside, those who belonged to the kingdom had full access to this pool. And the high priest would do this. He would go down. He would take this golden chalice. This pitcher. He'd fill it with water. And then the procession would go all the way back up. Up to the temple. Amidst everybody worshiping. And singing. And excited. And families being together. And the priest would walk through the courts of the Gentiles. Through the courts of the women. Through the courts of the men. Into the court of the priests. And then he would go before the altar of the Lord. And he would pour out this water on the ground. And it would happen for, for six days during this festival. And there, there they would do this. They, they would worship God. Because what, what the priest was doing. What they were all doing. Was they were remembering the provision of the Lord. They were thanking God. Thanksgiving family camp. They're just worshiping the Lord saying, God, we just, we just want to recognize that you're our source. That you're our provider. That we remember our history. That, that in the days of the wilderness, when our ancestors were in the wilderness, two and a half million people of them, and, and, and they didn't have any water to drink, and they had nothing to quench their thirst, and it was barren, and it was dusty, and it was dry, and it was rocky, and the sun was beating down on them, and there wasn't water for one person, let alone for two and a half million. You supplied. You supplied. You know, the people grumbled. 
they complained against Moses and Moses brought their complaint before you and you, you instructed Moses. You said, speak to the rock. And you'd supply water. And what did Moses do? Well, you know the story. He, he took the rod of Aaron and he struck that rock rather than speaking to it. He, he struck the rock in his pride and in his own anger against the people of God who were, who were complaining and the Lord was gracious and water poured out of that rock even though Moses struck it instead of speaking to it and, and water gushed out and two and a half million people were saved. And they all drank from this one source. It was enough for everyone that was there. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, the high priest went about this whole ceremony, this whole parade every single day to remember the fact that if not for the water the Lord had provided, not for the provision from the rock. There would be no people. There would be no nation. No Israel. No promised land. But because God gave water. And he sustained his people. And he was the source of life for them. They could worship him. And they could remember. And they could recount the goodness. And the faithfulness of God. And so every day the priest would do this. He'd go down. Fill his golden chalice, pitcher, cruise up to the temple, pour it out before the Lord. Great celebration. I'm sure it's like barbecue time. Every day would happen. But on the last day, on the last day, it was different. Because on the last day, he would do this. Same procession. Everybody lined the street. In fact, if you skip the previous six days, you made sure you didn't miss the last and greatest day of the feast because this was the one that was really awesome. Because the priest would do this. He, he would go down, same journey, same travel, same chalice, same golden chalice, same, same pool, same secret source that was for the people of God. He, he would go down there, but this time on the last day, he wouldn't fill the pitcher. He'd leave it empty. And... And then he would return and go through the parade and everything that was involved. The people of God would do this. They would actually stand on the sides of the street and they would sing Psalm 118. Turn with me to Psalm 118 for a second. In fact, specifically, on this day, they would sing this. They would sing verse 25. Okay, you ready? Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. See, the empty pitcher, and as they sang, and as they worshiped, and as all this was going on, that empty pitcher and chalice, it, it, and the worship signified, and it acknowledged, it acknowledged their need their need for the one who would satisfy not the physical thirst of their tongues and their bodies, but the spiritual thirst of their hearts. It was an acknowledgement saying, our pictures, my life is empty. And Lord, I'm looking to you to fill me up. Fill me, Lord. And in the midst of it, I'm crying out to you, Lord, save, save me because I'm looking for the one. 
I'm looking for the one you're going to send. I'm looking for the Messiah who is going to come. The one who's going to come and do for us what Moses did in the past. Moses led us and there was bread from heaven. Moses led us and there was, a water, there was water from the rock. And with the empty pitcher in our hand and that picture in our hearts, Lord, we're crying out to you. Would you meet our needs? Would you satisfy the thirst of our spirit? Now imagine that. Like imagine this scene is going on and, and here comes the priest from the pool of Siloam. He's got an empty pitcher. The crowds are worshiping. Save us, O oh Lord. Save us. And up he goes to the temple. In through the court of the Gentiles and the women, and the men and the priests and before the altar of the Lord and all of a sudden, this Jewish rabbi from the Galilee, a little carpenter, interrupts everything. Check it out, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Oh, how good is that? Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Oh, man. Well, the context is just so awesome, so mind-blowing to consider Jesus interrupting a million people worshiping and crying out, interrupting the high priest, interrupting everything. You're crying out for the one, let me tell you, I'm, I'm here. I'm present. Come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. And you can drink and not only will I satisfy, but you will overflow. I won't just fill your pitcher. You will overflow with rivers of living water. And you know, the people listened. When you read this, they listened. You know, every day they had been thinking about Moses. Every day they had been recounting their history. They had been talking about Moses striking the rock and giving them water which saved their lives. And now the itinerant rabbi, the carpenter from Galilee, whose name was on the lips of everybody as it was, some believing, some not, he cried out. And to me it's crazy because no one stopped him. Nobody said, shut up, you little carpenter from Galilee, you're interrupting this great moment. Nobody seized him. Nobody arrested him. No response from the high priest. Everybody's caught off guard and, and he's not ushered out of, the, out of the temple. He's disrupting that which was going on, but he's revealing himself to the nation. And something in the truth that he said rang, man. Like it, you just know that about Jesus, right? You recognize that in him. Imagine seeing him there that day. I like, I don't know what his eyes look like or the smile on his face or his body language, what it, what it communicated, his voice, the meekness, the power, the authority, and yet the humility and the grace and the invitation. And they listened. And John tells us in 30, verse 39, 
Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You know, over the years, <coughs> have a sip of water here. Over the years, I, when I was working down at the log sort in the maintenance department, it was like I was the startup guy in the morning or whatever general maintenance. And there's like some flaws in the design where, where we worked so that whenever one of these like heavy house sound rains would come down, we would have areas that would like sump areas that would flood out. And so we'd have to get the water out of there because there's all sorts of expensive parts and things that are going to break if we don't deal with the water. And so many times over the years on some morning, I'd be like, oh crap, this is flooded. I got to go get the Honda pump. So I, I'd go get the, the Honda pump and it's like, I need the forklift because it's a big, it's a big heavy pump and it's a gas, small gas engine on there. And then this water pump, and it was like common that you'd have to pump out areas in the winter time. The pump's powerful, you know, it's like got this three inch suction line. And then when it comes out the other end, it's like a fire hose. It's like, it's kind of fun. And, um, and so this pump is, is run by a small engine. And so, you know, if you like that kind of stuff, you know how it works. Little ignition switch, choke, pull start. And this engine would drive the pump. But the, but the thing about the pump was this. You'd drop the hose in the water and you'd fire up the engine and get it going and it wouldn't suck. Like nothing would come out of the pump until you did something. You know what you have to do to a pump? You prime it. And so the pump on the top had this thread off cap and I'd take a five gallon bucket of water and I would dump the water into the pump as it's working and when it would prime, she'd bite and whoosh, that pump would pump and pump and pump and it would go all day if you needed it to go and the water would fly and it'd be like, okay, that's easy, you know, got it going and now it like takes care of itself. The water would just pour out. Now I want to tell you something about what Jesus is saying here to this crowd. He's saying this. If you want rivers to flow out of you, you got to be primed. But you can't prime yourself. You can't prime yourself. You, the pump can work as hard as you want. Like my little Honda pump, that can work as hard. It can rev all day and burn hot and get hot and do its thing. And it's all effort until it gets primed. It won't work. And too many people are like that. You know, Christians are like that. It's like it's all effort and no fruit. Try to know everything, do everything, be busy, go about it. Try so hard and nothing works, nothing works, nothing works. Can't get fruit, can't get fruit, can't produce. Where's the water? Doesn't flow. Right, Andy? You got to get into the flow. The pump can work as hard as it wants. It's got to be primed. And Jesus told the crowds, here's how you get primed. Here's how you get primed so the spirit of God can flow through you. He said this, you come to me. You come to me. Look again what he said to this crowd. On the wrong page of my Bible. 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You want to get into the flow? The conditions of the flow are this. You go to Jesus. You come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus and you drink of Jesus, because you're thirsty, because you're barren like a wilderness, because you sense the dryness and the fruitful, fruitlessness and, the, and the, the, the rocky barrenness of dry, dry land in your body. You come to Jesus and you drink. You just drink of Jesus and you receive. And Jesus says, if you do this, if you come to me and you drink of me, I'll prime you. And out of you will flow rivers of living water. See, coming to Jesus primes the pump for the Holy Spirit. It primes the pump for, for, minute, for the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you come to him, rivers of living water will flow out of your heart. That's like incredible. What a great promise to this I actually thought this morning, I was sitting in my office, I'm like, I should just have an empty pitcher and like just dump water up here on the stage sometime this morning. Look, this was, look, what's Jesus saying, man? This is like a claim to quench, that he is the source that quenches the spiritual thirst of mankind. This was a claim to be the one who gives the Messiah, uh, gives the Holy Spirit, who the, who the, the Old Testament identified that he who gave the Holy Spirit would be the Messiah. This was a claim to be the Messiah. This was the claim to be the Messiah. And when you think about it, in the context of all the worship that was happening in the whole scene, I mean, this was the one they were, this was exactly the guy they were waiting for, that they were longing for, that they were singing to the Father in heaven to send, save us, save us. And you know, when you think about it, it's like, I think about the, the pump being primed. Maybe we'd ask this question, you know, it's like, why is it that some Christians pour out and God pours through them and other ones, it's like, man, I'm dry. I'm barren. I'm thirsty, man. I'm like parched. And the difference is this. Look at the difference is simply this, learning to drink. You have to learn to drink. You have to learn to go to Jesus and drink deeply of Jesus. Learning to thirst after him. Jesus said this. We've already seen this in this gospel. He said, my words are spirit and they are life. Where else are we going to go? Jesus. My words are spirit and they are life. Look at this is water for your soul. Water for your soul. The psalmist says, plant me, Lord. Plant me by streams that I'll bear fruit. And it says, okay, then you meditate on my word. Spend time with Jesus and get alone with him. And Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, whom it tells us here that John says, whom the, the Holy Spirit whom Jesus would give to those who believed in him 
but they couldn't yet receive him because Jesus hadn't been glorified. The Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was yet to die on the cross and give his life and be buried and be raised from the dead. And then we know that after, after that happened, he reappeared to his disciples and he breathed on them and said to them, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. That was the indwelling presence of the, of the Spirit to, to fill the chalice, the pitcher of their life. But then 10 days after that, the Feast of Pentecost happened. After Passover, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, and Acts chapter 2 tells us that it was then, at that point in time, that the disciples received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit came and descended upon them, and they overflowed. They overflowed. Why? Because who were they drinking of? Jesus. They were waiting in Jerusalem, drinking of Jesus, and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which couldn't happen until Jesus had been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And once Jesus had ascended into heaven, he poured out the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And so here's Jesus. I mean, he's talking about something that wouldn't happen for another six months. But you know the beauty for that? That was then. Today, you don't have to wait six months. I hate waiting six months for anything. You don't have to wait six months. You can, we, the, here's the great part of this. We get to drink of Jesus every day. Say, Lord, I need your spirit. Jesus, I need you. Would you quench my thirst? Would you fill me? Would you allow your spirit to flow through me? And if we drink deeply of Jesus, then he primes the pump and that's exactly what happens. The spirit begins to flow through our lives. The pump kicks in and rivers of living water flow. So here's Jesus. This is his invitation. Drink in and the spirit will pour out. And anyone who would make such a claim is, and they knew this, they were claiming to be the Messiah. There's no doubt. Once again, we've got to put ourselves in the sandals of the generation. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he made this claim. He told the Jews that, that the water that is being poured out is ceremonial, it's ritual. I'm the reality, come to me. He said, that symbol, that symbol, I'm the substance, come to me. Come to me. I'm the real thing and I want to quench your thirst and empower you by my spirit. And it's awesome how John presents this in his gospel because in John chapter six, we saw Jesus make this claim. I am the bread that came down from heaven. You got to eat of me. Then John chapter seven, John shows us Jesus is living water. Jesus claimed, I'll quench your thirst. On the day the priest didn't collect water, when it was empty, he said, I'll fill it and I'll flow through you. And out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water. And in verse 40, check it out. When people heard these words, some of the people, sorry, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. It was landing. This is, it was landing. It was registering. This is, this Jesus is more than just a man. No mere man speaks the way that, that he does 
I mean, he arrested, they'd been arrested by the word of God. Others said, verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. Wow, that doesn't get any clearer. They're like, they're recognizing who he is. They got it. They knew what was happening. They knew what he was saying. They knew who this was. But then we read in verse 41 continues. But some of them said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. There was division because of Jesus. Imagine that. What? Does Jesus bring division? Yes, he does. If you haven't figured that out yet, let me tell you something. Jesus brings division. So I come to bring a sword. Sometimes we feel it in our families. Sometimes we feel the division Jesus brings in the workplace or in our wrestling with culture or politics or our neighbors. You can feel the division that Christ brings in school or wherever it is. It's inevitable. As he, he said, I came not to bring peace, but to bring the sword. You're gonna decide which side are you on. And those who got hung up, we read about part of the crowd here that got hung up. They were ignorant and, and they didn't have all the information and they started to make criticisms of Jesus and it was like it's an ignorance. Mis misinformed opinion, that's what they had about Jesus, which is like a lot of the world. A lot of people are like critical of Jesus, but they're ignorant. When they talk, they're like ignorant. They just don't know any better. And they've like formed an opinion without the right information. This is often the case for those kind of people that get hung up with regards to Jesus, misinformed opinions about him. And where were these guys hung up? They were hung up on where they thought Jesus was from. Yeah, but he's from Galilee. We know they didn't have the whole story. They didn't know he was born in Bethlehem and the, the whole story. They didn't, they didn't have it. If, and I just think, wow, you know what? If they had just asked him, all they had to do was ask him, doesn't the scripture say that Christ is supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Like th that simple of a question. And what do you think Jesus would have said? Yep, and I was. But they didn't, they didn't do that. If only they would have asked him, he would have told them, I was born in Bethlehem. And to me, it's interesting that Jesus never offers up the information. To me, that's shocking. He knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's going on. Why didn't you just tell him? And in case you're wondering, I was born in Bethlehem. Problem solved. But he doesn't give that information. Didn't offer that clarity. It's interesting, he left them hanging. You know, I would just say this. If you got questions, go to Jesus with your questions. Don't leave them unanswered. Go to him and say, I don't understand this. Can you show me? Can you help me? You know what he will. But they had already made up their minds. Verse 45 says, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. I love it. It's like we went to arrest him, but we couldn't. We, we were arrested. No one's ever talked like this guy. Verse 47, The Pharisees answered them, 
Have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. It's interesting. Like they close their minds. They said there isn't one Pharisee amongst us who believes anything he's saying. Who believes Jesus. But what's cool is sitting right there in their midst. Who I imagine was feeling really uncomfortable. Was a guy by the name of Nicodemus. He was wrestling through his belief. Putting his faith in Jesus. He'd already gone to Jesus under the secret cover of night. In John chapter 3 and said. This, had this conversation with Jesus. I know no one could do the things you're doing unless he comes from God. And Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Remember that conversation? That's this Nicodemus. And he's already wrestling through in his, in his heart. And eventually, you know, there'd be another Pharisee who would believe. Remember his name? Saul. Saul also would come out of the group of the Pharisees. And so verse 50 tells us, Nicodemus who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So here's Nicodemus. He's like, whoa, 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 guys. Like maybe we should talk to him, get some information here, get some clarity. It's amazing. This is the second time we see Nicodemus. The next time we're going to see him is there burying Jesus. On the night he was betrayed and crucified, he'll partake and help bury Jesus. But first he comes to Jesus under the cover of night. You know, maybe you came to Jesus that way. And then kind of addressed the opinions of the crowd and got shut down. And, but eventually you made your way to him. But look what the Pharisees say to him. Verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I like it because that's what you do to people, right? When, when you can't, when they, when they got you, you just talk down at them. Thinking he's a fool. They begin to say, what, you an unschooled Galilean too? Shut up, Nicodemus. Don't you know? Prophets don't come from Galilee. And you know, here, here's these guys who pride themselves in their, their knowledge of the scripture and, and they don't know that there's a number of prophets from Galilee. Like how about Jonah? 2 Kings 14, 25 tells us that Jonah was from Galilee. Jonah was the greatest preacher in the history of the Old Testament. One message, a city of hundreds of thousands of people repented. They didn't know their one who you would argue was the great, maybe their greatest prophet, most effective anyways, had come from Galilee. How about Nahum? Capernaum means the town of Nahum. He's from Galilee too. And then how about Jesus? Born in Bethlehem. And you read this and it's like, wow, this is tragic. The unbelief, the debate, the division, some believed in him, but most made superficial, uninformed. Conclusions about Jesus, full of prejudice, blinded to the truth. 
All I could say is this. Don't let that be you. Just go to him and drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Would you bow your heads?